Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. We are going to pick up where we left off in the book of 2 Chronicles. Uh, we made it to chapter 32. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. After these things and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, sorry, I'm going to have to begin again because I got the right chapter and verse. I chose the wrong version of the Bible. Immediately tell with those uh, with the language, the old English type stuff. Okay, so that was the King James I had chosen. I'm using the blueletterbible.org website, which makes it easy now to switch to New King James Version. So let's begin again. Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 1. After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered. Judah, he encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. So what is being described here is an invasion by a neighboring kingdom, the Syrian kingdom, which you can read more about history outside of the Bible. History was never my strong suit in school. Um, math and English were, uh, believe it or not. But uh, history, not so much. But um, there was a mighty kingdom in the past known as the Assyrian Empire, just like the Roman Empire, African empires, uh, Byzantine Empire. There were empires that were conquering um, nations beyond just their own borders for long periods of time. This is one of them. Um, and apparently it invaded the land, verse 2. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was purpose was to make war against Jerusalem. So the king of the land, Judah, Jerusalem, is Hezekiah. He sees that an invading king has shown up at his doorstep. Verse 3, he could, well, beyond his doorstep, he's right there. Verse 3, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs, which are outside the city, and they helped him. So one of his strategies in defending the city was to stop, stop the water supply. Um, I guess it would help in a couple of ways. It would stop the water from being contaminated, for one thing, um, by an invading army. Um, it would also alert the people there to um, store up water and not waste it anymore since they are seeking war at that time. Um, I'm sure there are other strategic reasons beyond those. Um, but for whatever reason, he's stopping them up. And they seem to have agreed to it. Verse 4, thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brooks that ran through the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? So I guess um, they stop up the water because where there's water, generally speaking, on earth, carbon-based life forms, there's waters there where there's water there's life generally speaking so if they stop up the water and they i guess they feel like it'll encourage the invading armies to think that there isn't enough water there to sustain life even though you know people are living there who stopped up the waters i guess i don't understand i don't know but that's what they're doing um verse five and he strengthened himself built up the wall that was broken raised it up to the towers and built another wall outside. Also, he repaired Millo in the city of David and made
made weapons and shields in abundance. So Milo translates to landfill. So I'm guessing that's like a garbage pit. I don't know. It's a landfill. <clears throat> Excuse me. So those are some of the construction sort of projects that he did during his reign as king. Verse 6. Then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, So now the one who's calling the shots are gathering the common folks together to get them a pep round. And what's he saying to them? Verse 7. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before them all the multitude that is with him. For they're more with us than them. So the king is saying uh, faithful things. He's telling the people to be encouraged, be strong, be faithful. Because um, God's on their side. Verse 8. With them is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us in the fight of battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So he's giving them a speech to rally them for the war that uh, they're now engaged in, um, and they're rallied by it, they're encouraged by it, um, and, and just as a footnote, as usual, Lord hears in all caps, it's being translated from the name or word, Jehovah, Yehovah, however it's properly, respectfully pronounced, that's what it means, and it's like that in this instance. Verse 9, after this, and after the king of Assyria sent his servants to Jerusalem, but he and all the forces with him laid siege against the Kish to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, So, um, the king, the king of Judah has encouraged the people to stand strong against the invading Assyrian army. The Assyrian army has gathered a sort of delegation together and sent them to the king of Judah, Hezekiah, with a message. Here's the message, verse 10. Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? So the king, the invading army is asking them, who is it they have faith in? What is it they're putting their faith in? Why is it they haven't surrendered? Verse 11, does not Hezekiah, does not Hezekiah persuade you Give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria. So he's sort of mocking them with his message. He sent a delegation to the uh, army that he's invading. The Assyrians are doing this to the kingdom of Judah and asking them, Where's their faith? Who is it they're trusting in? Why haven't they surrendered yet? And sort of taunting them, asking them if they're putting their faith, uh, if they really consider themselves putting their faith in God, again, we already translated God, then um, verse 12, has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, you shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it. So the king of Assyria is sort of confused by the community's actions because he's saying, well, if you're upset at all of this on God's behalf, then um, 
aren't you upset that your king has taken away the altars of worship for your God? He's saying that, taunting them, knowing, I would think, that all those altars weren't to the same God. In the same way people believe, all of the Bible points to one God. It does not. And people believe you can worship everything from Genesis to Revelation faithfully. You cannot. There are things in it that contradict each other, whether it's an eye for an eye versus turn the other cheek or um, circumcision being of the flesh or not. There's lots of different things that people can say, dump a Bible and claim they believe in, but they contradict each other. And they're both said to be a doctrine from God. So how do you choose as Christians? I believe we have to lean into what it is Jesus says. And what he says is a tithe of the Bible like we've gone over again and again. In only six of the 60 plus books do we find anything at all that has quotes of red letters of things attributed to Jesus. So to me, that's what we as Christians have as our marching orders. Verse 12. That's not the same Hezekiah. So he's saying, what are they doing? What are they upset about? Um, the same king that they're happy about and following is the same king who's torn down the places of worship that they had before. Again, those places of worship were not to one entity, Jehovah, Yehovah, however it's pronounced for properly, whether those are some other way. The YHWH, YHVH entity, that's not who everyone was faithfully worshiping as we've read. There are all sorts of entities they were worshiping. And that's why some of those places of worship were torn down by Hezekiah when he took office. Verse 13. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand? So the king, uh, the invading army, the Assyrian armies, King Sinatra, and as always, please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these, is asking them, how dare they, basically, how dare they challenge him? Uh, haven't they heard about his reputation and the reputation of his the kingdoms of his forefathers? Verse 14, who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand? that your God should be able to deliver, to deliver you from my hand. Excuse me. Sinatra is boasting, basically, saying that just like none of the other kingdoms that his forefathers encountered before him were able to prevail against him, they aren't going to be able to either against him. So uh, them, so he's saying now they're not going to be able to be any match against him and his army either. Um, verse 14, who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed? So we read that one. Verse 15, now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this. And do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom is able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers, how much less will your God deliver you from my hand? So he's got a lot of big talk, letting them know that their forefathers weren't able to prevail against his forefathers. And now that he's decided to wage war against them, 
in their modern era, they're not going to be able to prevail either. Um, verse 16, furthermore, his servant spoke against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. So um, the narrator here of Second Chronicles are named, at least to me, letting us know that there was more sassy comments that the invading army had, not just for the king and his kingdom, but for God Almighty and God's kingdom, at least and God according to who they're worshiping as God, Jehovah, Jehovah, etc. Uh, verse 17, he also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the God of the nations of as the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. So I don't know historically if um the Assyrian kingdom was able to take both the kingdom of uh, Judah and the kingdom of Israel. I guess we'll have to keep reading to see that for myself or look it up somewhere else. Uh, but at this point, he's letting them know that they're, they're no match and they have no hope of being able to resist the power of his invading army. Verse 18, then they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew, to the people of Jerusalem who were on the, wall, on the wall to frighten them and trouble them that they might take the city. So there were people living apparently in and on the wall. So you can imagine how thick the wall was, um, that there's people living in it, but um, shouting out to those people, because I guess those people would be the first to know that there's an invasion, because if they're keeping watch, they see it, they're on the wall. Um, and if there's any bombs to hit a city, they'd be the first to feel it. Uh, unless it's like in modern times where you can GPS bombs to people. How awful that is. Verse 18, then they called out, <clears throat> excuse me, we read that, didn't we? Um, yeah, because they were calling out um, in the language of the common people, so to speak so that they can understand the threat that they're facing just in case the elites were keeping them in the dark. Like in modern times, how people don't necessarily know what's going on with things until the, uh, the um, powers that be are ready for them to know. Perfect example is what happened with COVID before the rest of the world, before the rest of the nation was alerted about what's going on with COVID and the threat of it. Um, conspiracies were able to be born um, to help cover up the fact that many people in our elite government and attached to them already knew what was on the way and were able to make investments in all sorts of things that they knew would face profits with the different industries that would spring up, whether it was the mass or the drugs, the medications, the research, the pharmaceuticals. They were given all those sorts of heads up to invest in them before anyone else did in a nation like America, uh, where we're supposed to believe everyone's equal. Um, anyway, verse 19. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of men's hands. So the narrator again here is letting us know that the invading army is talking big and bad against uh, the God of their people, their nation, Jehovah, Jehovah, however it's respectfully pronounced. 
the same way they would talk against wood and stone, the different articles and things that people worship as their entities, as their idols, as their gods. The same way people worship those same sort of things in modern times, it may not be wood and stone. Actually, in some ways it is wood uh, and stone or, you know, metals, the different idols of metals, bronze and gold that they would mold for themselves. People do that in modern times too. There's a very much a very expensive price placed on gold now. It's in the commodities market. So are some of those other precious metals. And so also is wood and timber and lumber. And so people still in modern times worship those things, even if they don't mean to uh, religiously worship them. They religiously worship them, even if it's only in in, a, in an altered sense in the commodities market, say on the stock market, where they invest in those things and move mountains in those uh, ways, in that sense, in those things, figuratively and literally, figuratively um, with the money that moves in the commodities and literally in changing the landscape, whether it's with the trees or literally with the mountains, blowing them open to reveal the minerals that are inside them and then further exploiting the earth, which as we know, Jesus lets us know as Christians, yields crops by itself, meaning the earth is unpredictable. It will do its own thing. So, uh, and it seems to me that's part of what it is God tunes in for, to see what it is humans will do in the sense of righteousness or wickedness, right or wrong, and what the earth will do in response to the human things like pollution of the air, the water, the land, not to mention the things humans do to each other, how the earth will respond to all of that. And it seems God is tuning in to see just what happens along the way. Um, verse 20, in my opinion, verse 20. Now, because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out for heaven. So because of the siege from the invading army and the sass, the blasphemy of what it is they're even saying against their God, the king, Hezekiah, and the prophet of the times, the seer, the person who's in touch with God, the religious leader, the spiritual leader, Amos, have teamed up to pray for the people in the situation. Here's what they're saying. Verse 21. Um, then the oh, they are not going to hear what they're praying here. I think we read about what was said um, when we read in the King's Arabian Chronicles before. I'm sorry, in the King's before, or I thought we read about this before previously, but either way, I think we, you can find it if you want to use the same site I told you about, dlettabible.org. Just do a site for the word name Amos. Everywhere his name is mentioned will pop up also Isaiah. And you can see the same thing and see the different prophecies related to what they said, who they said it to, and whether or not they came true later as you keep reading, if you want to research the timelines of the Bible. See, um, verse 21. Um, so we just read in 20 that they cried out together in prayer, basically pleading with God. Verse 21, then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader, and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned shamefaced to his own land. 
And when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword there. So now that does sound familiar that we have read that before. Um, in our previous readings here on the Matrix Truth, so I know you can research it and get it in context of how it was written previously, how other people who covered the same incidents in the Bible covered them from their perspective or how they were scribed anyway, if you want to research it yourself. Um, so but apparently what happened to him was, according to the narrator, was the Lord went out and avenged the blasphemy, according to what the narrator is saying, um, by assassinating, killing, massacring the opposing Assyrian army. And then that's what turned them back from um, further conquering uh, the kingdom of Judah anyway. At least that's what is written here. And um, when he returned to his own kingdom, he uh, didn't fare any better. His own people turned on him, it seems, <clears throat> excuse me, and struck him down even while he was in the temple of the place where he was going to worship. Verse 22, thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. So according to the narrator, the kingdom of Judah, uh, or at least Jerusalem, was spared uh, from the conquering Assyrian army. Um, and um, so presumably the Israel, the kingdom of Israel, the other tribes, the other 10 tribes as they're um, referred to, um, did, were not spared apparently and were already taken captive uh, by the conquering Assyrians. And again, you can read it yourself more history. Verse 23, and many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. So um, apparently his victory over the Assyrian, invading Assyrians, was something that pleased even the neighboring kingdoms, so that they um, even sent presents to Hezekiah king of Judah and uh, after his victory. Presumably the kingdom of Israel who were left, those who were left who weren't taken, uh, but also maybe some of the Syrians and others. I don't know. doesn't say specifically. Verse 24 in those days Hezekiah was sick and near death and he prayed to the Lord and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. So the narrator is letting us know Hezekiah fell ill and prayed to God and God sent him a sign again. I'm just saying God because that's who it's who it is to them. That's who is being referred to to them, whether regardless of who I believe it to be, that's what's the idea I believe is to be conveyed. Verse 25, but Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. So it seems Hezekiah felt ill, got healed, and rather than um, act accordingly, you know, be glad and thankful and change his ways, instead it seems he his heart got lifted up, usually in pride is the reference, um, inference when they say that in the Bible. So then what happens? 
verse 26, that Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. And he, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not, uh, did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So the narrator is saying, because they repented and had a change of heart, God spared them um, any further wrath and punishment for their prideful actions and behavior. Verse 20, God humbled them. Verse 27, Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made himself treasuries for silver, gold, for precious stones, for spices, for seals, and for all kinds of desirable items. So Hezekiah was loaded. He stacked up treasures for himself. Verse 28, storehouses for the harvest of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of livestock, and folds for flocks. So he's rich in many different ways. Verse 29, moreover, he provided cities for himself, and possessions of flocks, and herds in abundance. For God had given him very great, very much property. So the narrator is attributing his great riches, Hezekiah's that is, to God being on his side. Whereas we know as Christians, what Jesus tells us, it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the rich have woe to the rich because they perceived their consolation. The rich have received their heaven right here on earth. They're able to basically achieve, attain, get whatever it is they want with money. Because money, as uh, Proverbs says, doesn't really but answers all things. But in many instances, it does. In some cases, it can make you... It can change even your medical diagnosis. So um, it can, it's very powerful. It can move people to do things uh, in that sense. So um, here we have an example of someone who's blessed very abundantly, it seems. And the narrator is giving credit to God for it, even though that's not necessarily what we as Christians gather is to be what we value. Verse 30, the same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet of Upper Gihon and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. So um, he did water works. Moving around the water, as we read previously, is uh, um, essential to a thriving society. So he did different things there with the utilities. And he was prosperous. Verse 31, however, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. So a great miracle happened, a wonder anyway, as we call it. And in regards to that, the narrator is saying, uh, but God withdrew to see how Hezekiah would respond to other nations asking about him. Would he be prideful and claim um, authority himself? Or would he give God the glory? Verse 32, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed, they're written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So to read more about it, 
the miracles, the wonders, acts that we read before, Hezekiah and his administration. Look to the books of the kings. Look to the books of when we read about them in the Here on the Naked Truth, uh, the books of First and Second Kings. Verse 33, so Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper tombs of his sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. Then Manasseh's son reigned in his place. So Hezekiah's administration ended. He passed away, was buried with the kings in the tombs of the kings, previous kings like David and Solomon. And now his son Manasseh, just in, I don't know why, but Manasseh's Virginia always comes to mind for some reason, like they're just named for each other, named for each other. But his son is king now in his place. Um, that was the last verse in this chapter. So that's where we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth. I hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you. See you next time. Peace be with you.